This week we're doing something slightly different to what we normally do during our Sunday sermons. Instead of unpacking a particular passage from scripture and then applying it out to our world, we're unpacking a particular issue that faces Christians today and then applying the gift of biblical Christian wisdom to that issue as we think carefully about how we ought to respond to it. In the past at All Souls, uh, there have been sermons on um, things like biotechnology, sexuality, industrial action, and feminism, and all of those have required careful, analytical thought. But this year, we've gone slightly meta, and we've been thinking about thinking itself, because one of the issues facing Christians today is the fact that we seem to be losing the ability to think at all. Last week, Charlie introduced us to the problem by saying that God gave each of us minds that we live in a brave new world where we are amusing ourselves to death. Ideas are hard, but we are addicted to mental junk food, becoming resistant to any idea that takes more than 30 seconds to understand and any truth that doesn't feel immediately kind. And I'm not sure whether this should make us feel better or worse, but there are whole economies invested in keeping us that way. No one needs to ban books because we have simply given up on them, distracted by waterfalls of triviality. It was bleak. Uh, And he was actually quite worried that he might be painting the picture a bit too dark. Uh, But what I've been hearing all week is that if anything... The problem is actually probably even worse than he said. Because Charlie's point wasn't whether you read more or less than the person next to you. It's about whether you read more or less than you used to or you'd like to or would be good for you. And if many of us are honest, if we're honest with ourselves, well, we are so completely addicted to triviality that even getting up to turn on a TV is becoming too much effort let alone reading more than half a page of a book. We are addicted to triviality. And that isn't just affecting the content of our thoughts, it's actually affecting our capacity to think. That's the problem. This week, we're considering what we might do about it. And here's what I want to suggest in a nutshell. If the problem is that we are reading less, which means we are thinking worse, well, then the solution will require reading the sort of books that make us think better even and especially when we don't want to. But that's not where I want to start. Because some of you have realised that this sermon is probably going to be the book equivalent of Eat Your Greens, and you already stopped listening. So I don't want to begin with books. I want to begin by telling you about one of the greatest kings that this island has ever known. I want to begin by telling you about Alfred the Great. In a time before there was an England... This king was already dreaming about it. King Alfred of Wessex had defeated what history remembers as the Great Heathen Army, a furious force of marauding Vikings whose plundering and pillaging had become more and more brazen with each devastating year. Alfred finally put an end to their menace at the Battle of Eddington in the year 878. It was a dense And it was a gritty battle, testing his army's willpower as much as their brute strength. But at last, Alfred clawed back his kingdom from the brink of oblivion. 
driving the Vikings from Wessex and allowing his people a moment to catch his breath. It was a moment of peace that was sorely needed, but that wasn't what made him great. It wasn't the initial victory over the Vikings that made Alfred great in the history books. It was what he built on that victory. With his country in ruins, he masterminded the construction of a network of fortified towns at tactical points right across the country, from Exeter and Warwick to Winchester and Oxford, meaning his military could respond to an attack anywhere in the kingdom within a single day. It was the foundation on which his dream of England would go on to be built, but that is not what made him truly great, not by itself. Because King Alfred knew that the ruin that his country was in was more than physical. He knew that the ruin his country was in was spiritual in its nature. It was the rotting away of Christian wisdom that actually most troubled him. And the problem, according to him, was that people had stopped reading books. King Alfred looked out on his ruined kingdom and he saw a tragedy. The tragedy that his kingdom was already in ruins before the first Vikings had even arrived. Here's what he wrote to his bishops about that problem. He says, I remembered before it had been all ravaged and burnt how the churches throughout the whole of England stood filled with treasures and books. And there was also a great multitude of God's servants, but they had very little knowledge of the books. He goes on, our forefathers who formerly held these places loved wisdom and through it they obtained wealth and passed it down to us. But we have lost both the wealth and the wisdom because we would not set our minds to follow their example. Before the first Viking had even arrived, King Alfred's kingdom was already on its way to ruin. And the problem, as he saw it, was that people had stopped reading books. Alfred knew that kingdoms are made out of more than just bricks. So he knew that his problem was more than just the furious destruction of the Vikings. King Alfred knew that their deeper problem was a reading problem. Because he knew that strong kingdoms are built out of wise people, and wise people are made out of words. Which is my first point. Because the church isn't just made out of bricks either, is it? So if the church is in ruins... Well, that's a reading problem. When the church is in ruins, that is a reading problem because like a spiritual house made out of living stones, to use Peter's language, the church is built out of people who are made out of words. Let's unpack uh, that idea a little bit. The church is built out of people who are made out of words. Just like your body is made out of the food that you have eaten, your mind is made out of words that you read and think. Your thoughts, the things you know and understand, everything that makes up your intelligence or your mind, your rational mind, well, it's made out of the words and sentences that you have been reading and listening to and thinking about. So just like you cannot have a healthy body unless you have been eating and eating well, Well, you cannot have a healthy mind unless you have been thinking and thinking hard about truthful words. 
And what's true of everyone is even more true of us Christians, because a Christian's mind isn't just made out of words, it's being remade out of words. We used to live, 1 Peter 1 verse 14, in ignorance, but now, verse 23, we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And it isn't just physical food we need if we're going to keep on growing. Two verse two over the page. It is pure spiritual milk that we must crave like a baby if we are ever going to grow up in our salvation. Think about some of the people that we most admire in the history of the church, people like C.S. Lewis and John Stott and Tim Keller or Martin Luther, Augustine of Hippo and Athanasius of Alexandria. These people weren't born thinking big thoughts. Tim Keller wasn't born with a nuanced understanding of Western culture. Martin Luther didn't come out of the womb decrying the corruptions of the papal mass. The people we most admire in church history weren't born thinking big thoughts. Rather, 1 Peter 1 verse 13, with minds alert and fully sober, they purified themselves by obeying the truth. Born again through the living and enduring word of God, craving pure spiritual milk and refusing to conform to the evil desires of ignorance. The people we most admire in church history were made by the words that they read. And what they read and thought about, they wrote down for the building up of the church and the glory of God. They were living stones fashioned from words, built into a spiritual house on the bedrock of the Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of his words. They knew that the church is built out of people who are made out of words. So they worked hard to make sure that they were made out of the truest and the best and the most wonderful words that they could find and get hold of. It is good to take care of our bodies because our bodies are precious to God. And it is even more important to take care of your mind because our minds are precious to God too. But also because whether or not we take care of our minds won't only impact us. Like bricks in a building, a spiritual house, the health of our minds, it affects other people too. If we don't eat our greens, our bodies will waste away. But if we stop reading and thinking, it won't just be our own minds that waste away. It will be the minds of all the people around us and the people who come after us too. And I feel especially convicted by this point because each generation inherits what the previous generation has built and has to live with the shadows of that generation's sins. And living in those shadows can cause a lot of heartbreak and pain, which is why at this point I want to speak particularly to people in my generation. If you're a millennial or a Gen Z, this is for you. Because imagine the ruin, imagine the hell we will leave behind if we are the generation in the history of the church that stopped reading. Previous generations didn't just leave us buildings made out of brick, they left us cathedrals made out of sentences. 
And do you think future generations will ever forgive us if we let all of that rot away in the ruin of ignorance because we were too addicted to TikTok and Twitter to spend any serious time thinking about anything hard? Churches are spiritual buildings built out of people who have been reborn and are being remade out of words. So I wonder what sort of church do we want to leave behind us one day? Because if the church is in ruins, that is a reading problem. And it isn't bricks and mortar that we need, as useful as those things are. If the church is in ruins, what we need are words and sentences and books. If the church is in ruins, the only way we will restore it is by reading. Come back uh, to King Alfred, because here's how he put it to his bishops in a handwritten, handwritten letter addressed to each one of them. He said, consider what punishment shall fall upon us for the sake of this world. If we have neither loved wisdom ourselves, nor passed it on to others. If we have loved the name Christian only, and very few of its duties. Or 1 Peter 1 verse 14. Brothers and sisters, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Point one, the church is built out of people who are made out of words. But point two, reading takes discipline. Point two, reading takes discipline. There will always be ample and so many reasons to fill our minds with fluff instead of reading things that are hard. And if we wait until we want to read hard things, well, let's be honest, we probably never will. Generally, if you wait until you want to go to the gym, at least in my experience, you never actually go to the gym. And if you wait until you want to read something hard, you won't. This is the sort of decision that you have to make when you don't want to read yet. But it's actually even harder than that. Because this isn't even the sort of decision that you don't want to make, but you can make once when you're feeling particularly convicted after hearing back-to-back sermons about how important reading is. The change we need, well, it's a change that will only come when we've made that same hard decision again and again and again. Building up the muscles and habits that we need by repeatedly exercising them. Like running, reading is a discipline, which means it takes effort, yes, but it also takes time. I imagine very few of us could run seven-minute miles or bench press 70 kgs the first time that we decided to do it. And the first step of couch to 5k is not run 5k. We need to have something to aim for, yes, but we also need to know the steps that we can build on and repeat in order to get there. So I want to give five really practical steps that may help us get off the couch and to the reading equivalent of running 5K. Um, These may be completely useless to you. Um, If they are, ignore them. But these are all steps that I have found particularly helpful as I've tried to get into that habit of reading well for the sake of thinking better. Uh, Five tips followed by one health warning. And if you were here last week, number one is not going to surprise you. Number one, put your phone in another room. 
Actually, I want to suggest going one step further than that. Turn off your phone and then put it in another room. And um, whether or not you keep reading, leave it off for one hour. If you do turn it off, and without wanting to overstate this, in my experience, it may actually feel like something has just died in your hands. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to try it after the service. There are whole economies invested in keeping that phone in your pocket and alive, and they have bet big money that your phone can divert your attention. So don't make hard reading even harder. Number one, turn off your phone for an hour and put it in another room, even if you don't read for that whole length of time. Tip two, read with a pen. Physical books are just a fantastic piece of technology for analytical thinking. You can see a whole section of the argument at the entire, um, all at once. Um, you can track what's going on one page. If you turn back to a previous page, normally in your mind, that takes you back to that point in the argument. But it also is a really great piece of technology because it's something that you can write on. I find that reading with a pen keeps me focused and helps me keep track of an argument. Here's what I do. I put one line in the margin next to a piece of writing that I think is good or important. I put two lines next to it if I think it's particularly good or particularly important. I put a star next to something that's worth the cost of the book. And if it's a definition or a series of connected points that all hang together, I underline those and put numbers next to them. That might not be what helps you, but having a pen in your hand... I find, is the sort of thing that helps keep you engaged to track the sort of analytical argument that we need to be doing if we're going to think hard. If you're the sort of person who finds audiobooks way easier to get into, um, what I've been told is that having a notebook is what will help you do this. Keep a notebook with you as you're listening and a pen. Or if you want to go one step further, as you're listening to that audiobook, have a printed copy of the same book that you can follow along with and you can note stuff down on. Tip two, read with a pen. Number three, when you want to stop, give one more big push. When you find yourself wanting to stop reading, nine times out of ten, you will still have one more big push left in you. And if you give one more big push every time you want to stop, well, what you'll find is that you start to grow stronger mental muscles that are healthier each time you sit down to read. Train your mind to stay focused for longer by not quitting the first time that you want to. Number three, when you want to stop, give one more big push. Number four, read in groups. And thank you, Dan, for that fantastic piece of advice. I think this is probably the thing that has most helped me uh, to read good books that help me think better. Because when I know I'm going to be discussing a book with a group of people, I'm just way more likely to be disciplined about finishing it, but also to think hard about what it's saying and my own opinions about it. It doesn't have to be something official. All you have to do to start one of these is pick a book and ask a group of people if they'd like to read it with you. And 
then just put some dates in the diary for discussing it. Uh, If you want some resources to help you begin, um, Reformed Theological Seminary in the States launched a series of reading um, groups a few years ago, and they've put the resources uh, from those freely available online. You can head to that webpage and you can find all of those. I want to particularly suggest that you start uh, with Athanasius's On the Incarnation, which we'll have on sale at the back after this service. And that leads to tip number five, which I've actually stolen from C.S. Lewis's preface to that book. Tip number five, for every new book you read, read at least one old one. If you talk to some people, you'll get the impression that old books are only for experts, as though normal Christians are better off only reading books published in their own lifetimes by people with all the same cultural blind spots that we have. C.S. Lewis profoundly disagreed for at least one simple reason. He says new books, well, they're still on trial and no one has any idea if they're any good or not. They've only just been published. It's the old books, the church, the books that the church has treasured for centuries that have proved their worth countless times over. They've been tested. They've been stamped on and clung to and treasured by Christians from Norfolk to Nairobi. And they have lasted. They are still being read because of how great they are. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes that book, Athanasius is on the Incarnation, in the introduction that he wrote to it um, a few decades ago. He says, when I first opened this book, I soon discovered by a very simple test that I was reading a masterpiece. How? Because only a mastermind could in the fourth century have written so deeply on a subject with such classical simplicity. We've got six copies of that book on sale after the service. We've only got six. Uh, Some members of the team didn't think it would sell very well. I would love to prove them wrong. So let's make sure that all six of those go before the end. That's Athanasius' On the Incarnation. That one is £14. Later in the introduction, C.S. Lewis describes it as being like the tree of life because of the golden sap that drips um, of the gospel on every page. Uh, We've got a couple more books on sale at the back. We've also got this one called Before You Open Your Bible. Uh, That one is £2, um, and that one is all about um, how we should approach reading scripture, which, of course, is the thing we should read which is going to most profoundly impact our lives. Uh, And approaching it, um, according to Matt Smethurst, is a spiritual exercise. And we've got two more books on sale. We've got this one, which is called Mere Christianity. You may have heard of it. It's by that same author again, C.S. Lewis. Uh, This book is £8. Um, It was actually the book that led my mum to faith. So if you're looking into Christianity, I would hugely recommend this book to you. It is rich and it is lucid and it is worth £8 many times over. And then lastly, we've got the Screw Tape Letters, also by C.S. Lewis. You might be detecting a theme. Um, The Screw Tape Letters is a slightly cheeky and very challenging book. Um, It will cost £8, and it is um, written from the perspective of a junior demon writing to a senior demon about how best uh, to tempt the person that he's trying to uh, cause to sin. Um, It is deeply challenging and quite a good laugh at the same time. Those will be on sale at the Connect Corner after the service, and any of those 
would make a fantastic book for starting a book club. So maybe don't just buy one, get a group of you and buy enough for all of you. All you need to do is pick one and then ask a few people if they'd be up for it. And then once you're done with those, um, if those ones are ones you've already covered, come and find me because I've got another list of other books, particularly old books, that you might find useful and helpful as we think hard. So five tips. Number one, turn off your phone and put it in another room. Number two, read with a pen. Three, when you want to stop, give one more big push. Four, read in groups. And five, for every new book you read, read at least one old book. I hope those tips are helpful, but here's the health warning. Those tips probably will not change your life. Because unless you are hungry, actually those tips probably won't change anything. And they may even make the problem worse, filling your head with knowledge uh, when you don't really want to worship the God you're reading about. What we desperately need, well, it isn't really a technique, is it? Or a longer attention span, even even though those things are useful. What we desperately need is spiritual hunger for God in all his glory. What we need is the sort of craving that a newborn baby has for milk, the sort of single-minded desire that would be willing to trade all creation in order to read a single true sentence about the God who made it. Number one, the church is built out of people who are made out of words. Number two, that reading takes discipline. So number three, read like you're building a cathedral. Read like you're building a cathedral. This country is filled with just the most magnificent cathedrals, built to the glory of God by people who turned their devotion into discipline, cutting marble and limestone and slate into the sort of sublime structures that take centuries of sacrifice to complete, that might just give a small sense of the infinite majesty of the God that we worship. And yet, as rich as these buildings are, and as profoundly grateful as we should be to past generations for building them, we do not believe that God lives atop the spire of Salisbury Cathedral. We don't believe he lives in the cloisters of Westminster Abbey or even beneath the golden columns of All Souls Langham Place. Our God doesn't live in buildings built by human hands. He lives in us like a spiritual house built out of living stones. The church is built out of people who are made out of words. And that spiritual house is the building which the living God delights to call his home. Do you know, your mind is a brick in the only cathedral that God actually and permanently lives in. So as I close... I wonder, what sort of brick do you want your mind to be? Don't you want your mind to be fashioned from marble and gilded with gold? Don't you want to fill your thoughts with the weightiest truths that you know how to lift? Don't you want to enrich your understanding with the most magnificent sentences you can find and to fuse yourself with divine wisdom so that in some small way, your mind might begin to do justice to the infinite grandeur of the God who has made his home there. 
if your mind is a brick in the only cathedral that God actually and permanently lives in, and it really is, then don't just read because Charlie told you or I told you to. Don't just read because you've turned off your phone and for the next 55 minutes you have nothing better to do. Read because you want to make your mind reflect the glory of the God who lives within it. The church is built out of people who are made out of words. So read like you are building a cathedral, because you are. Read like God has made his home in your thoughts, because he has. Read like you are trying to stretch your little mind around God's everlasting glory, because in the mystery of God's infinite grace, that is exactly what you are doing. There are so many ways that we could fill up our minds with fluff. That God has made his home within us, so let's read like it. As the band comes up, let me pray for us before we sing together. Lord God, you have made your home in our minds by faith. And unless you keep building us up, we know that we labour in vain. Rescue us, we pray, from the ruin of sin and the ruin of ignorance. Purify our desires by the light of your word. Enrich our understanding. Enlarge our thoughts. And make us into the sort of building befitting of your great glory. We pray it in the name of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.